Imagine how weird it would be if in your daily life, you would come home and every day there was some random person sitting at your table, following you around, cooking your meals with you, climbing into bed with you at night, riding beside you in the car, attending your appointments, and at no point in time were you to look over and say, who are you? Why are you, why are you following me around? What is it that you want to say to me? What is your role in my life? That would be super weird, would it not be? And yet, the word of God tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, speaking to an ancient gathering of Christians, not unlike us. Here's what the word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, to Christians, I'll emphasize it, to Christians, do you not know? There was an information deficit. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Question mark. Do you not know that? Now, I suspect that their response would be, well, yeah, we, we know that, pointing up here. We, we know that to be true. And so he's probably not really challenging so much their, their knowledge base, probably more the way they're living and their actions and activities. But it, it is a, a bit of a reminder and a bit of a rebuke, and it, it should cause us to do a bit of soul searching as we wrestle with the question, do we know this? Do we understand that we are God's temple? Do you know that? That if you're a born-again Christian, you are God's temple? That the Holy Spirit lives in you? So it begs the question, do you know who the Holy Spirit even is? Do you understand the Holy Spirit? Do you understand the Holy Spirit's person? And do you understand the Holy Spirit's work in your life? It's incredibly important for us to wrap our minds around the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And yet many Christians, unfortunately, are oblivious to who he is, what his role is in their lives, or what he wants to communicate to us. We sort of have a mental image of the father and we have a very mental image of the son. It's the Holy Spirit, I don't know, it's sort of some nebulous, immaterial, pie in the sky, esoteric kind of personality. No, that's not true. Ancient Christians believed in the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the creeds, two of the major creeds, which summarize in just a few paragraphs, the whole of scripture, they put in a few creedal statements pertaining to the Holy Spirit, which says to us, this is core doctrine. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. We'll come back to that and the Son clause in a moment, because that was actually added in a later rendition of the Apostles' Creed a couple decades after the original, and there's a significant reason for that. But again, I'll just read that. Who proceeds from the Father and the Son, he was spoken through the prophets. So the creedal statements of early Christians that captured and tried to summarize the most basic, basic biblical concepts felt it was important to articulate who the Spirit 
of God is. So as we've been doing this study, if you're joining us for maybe the first time, we're doing what we call a theological study, a doctrinal study. We don't wanna be a mushy middle Christian church. You know what a mushy middle Christian church is? Uh, it's one of those churches that doesn't really stand for anything. People fill them up because we don't have to wear suits and ties, and we don't. And they sing modern music, and we do. But they water down the gospel, and we don't do that. Or they sidestep fundamentals of the faith. So in some churches, unfortunately, you can have people that have been to church for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and have no real concept of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And then when you encounter challenges and attacks or messages from cults or false teachers, or you're dealing with major cultural crises, you're like deer in the headlights. No idea how to respond because the walls are up, but the foundation was never poured. So we don't wanna be that. We don't wanna be wishy-washy, flaky, mushy Christians. This isn't diet church. This is full calorie church. And so we're gonna unpack various doctrines in the word of God. And we've dealt with theology proper, which is our doctrine of God. And we spent a few weeks on our Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ. And today we're going to do a, begin a two-part series on what we call pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The reason why we call it that is because the Greek word for spirit is pneuma or pneumatos. Now you will recognize that that word has found its way into the English language, pneumothorax or pneumatics to do with air, air in the lungs or air in the, uh, uh, some lines, a compressor, for example. So this word is a word that in the Greek language sort of has a, a bit of a breadth of meaning to it, as do many words sort of a semantic range to it. It can mean spirit or force or soul in the Greek language. In the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Covenant scriptures, the spirit, the word for spirit is ruach. In English, we would spell it R-U-A-H, ruach. And this word ruach and pneuma come up time and time again in the scriptures. Ruach comes up 379 times in the Hebrew Bible. Pneuma comes up 300 times in the Greek New Testament, just in 27 books. And again, it can be used to refer to breath or attitude, ruach again of air, wind. And it points to the immaterial nature of the object that's being described. So in the Bible then, we come across the spirit of God, the pneuma of God, the ruach of God, or the Holy Spirit, now we're being told, yes, this is an immaterial being, but he is holy. And in scripture, what we'd like to do today is to look at three basic things you need to know about the person, the, the, the nature of the Holy Spirit, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, I wanna talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. But first of all, we wanna kind of wrestle to the ground this question, who, who is he? What, what is he all about? Well, we do know that he's immaterial as the word spirit implies. But even though he's immaterial, listen to this, he is of great material importance. He's immaterial. 
but he is of great material importance. Why? Because it is the spirit of God that regenerates us. We're born dead in sin and trespasses, lost and without hope. We are regenerated by the spirit of God. That's kind of important, super important to me. It has an effect upon my entire eternity. The Holy Spirit is also the point at which God's triune self becomes personal to the current believer. If we were in the first century, we could say, no, that was Jesus because I got to talk with him or I got to walk with him. But he's ascended to the Father as we discussed in our Christology. So now the Holy Spirit is that point at which God becomes personal to the current believer. He also aids in our experiential relationship with God. We'll talk about that next week, but things like conviction, rebuke, encouragement, giftings. He convicts us of sin. He illuminates our mind to truth so we can read scripture accurately. He fills us and he gifts us with the gifts of the Holy Spirit for ministry and worship in the affirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's have a conversation about the nature of the Holy Spirit. We'll start with this fundamental question. Is he, is he a person or is he just some nebulous power? And the answer to that is he is a powerful person. The scriptures talk about his personality, his divinity, and the fact that he is the third person of the triune God. So beginning with the personality of the spirit, we're going to look at a whole ton load of scriptures today. A few of them will be on the screen. I warned you a couple weeks ago to bring a notepad to church. So if you didn't, I hope you have an extremely good memory. And I hope you've been practicing finding your way through the Bible because I, I'm not going to slow down. I'm just going to go at this because there's so many, so many scriptures that relate to the Holy Spirit. I'll read several of them for you and give you other references if you want to continue this study at home. So talking about the personality of the Spirit, we must ask the question, what is personality? You have a personality. I have a personality. You ever ask, like, what is personality? Well, personality is about your will. You have a, a will that impacts and affects decisions, not just in the spiritual realm, but also in the spiritually neutral realm. You have a will. You have intellect. You have thought processes that rightly or wrongly guide and direct your decisions, your emotions. And you also have subsistence, meanings that, meaning that you, you exist, you are. You are an entity unto yourself. And you're aware of that. We have a consciousness. I have a consciousness that I am a being. And I have a consciousness that you're a being. But your being is different than mine. So you have subsistence and I have subsistence. The Holy Spirit possesses all three of these. In some false Christian groups, they'll say the Holy Spirit is just a force. So for example, if I take my hand and let's say we were able to color the air with some smoke or some dye and I were to wave my hand in front of you, I'm moving air, you can't see it. But if I were to color that air, you could see maybe the swooshes and whooshes of air or smoke moving because of the result of the movement of my hand. And some 
Christian cults would say that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a person. He doesn't have subsistence, doesn't have a personality. But when God moves and the air is displaced, that's kind of like what the Spirit is. When the Father moves or the Son moves, things happen. That's like the Spirit. It's a nebulous, non-material, non-substantial, non-personal view of the Holy Spirit of God. That's false teaching. That's heresy. The Holy Spirit is personal. So let's look at the biblical evidence for this and then talk about the the reasons why this is important. So for example, personal pronouns are used to describe the Holy Spirit. He's called a he, for example, in scripture. Not in the sense that he's just, they're, they're personifying an object. He's not just the, like a thing, the stage, the mat, the jacket. He is called the Holy Spirit, but he's also referred to by personal pronouns like he. And we also know that this Holy Spirit speaks. Personalities speak, right? Beings speak. Air doesn't speak. Immaterial things like wind doesn't speak. Breath doesn't speak. It may be the result of speaking. But God, the Holy Spirit speaks. An example of this is in Acts 13, 12. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, he spoke, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So there's something else in there which is gonna flesh itself out a little bit more next week. He's involved in the setting apart of people for the preaching of the gospel. But for our purposes today, I just wanna emphasize the fact that he speaks. You could also write down Acts 21, 11. John 15, 26, John 16, 13 to 14, and 1 Timothy 4, 1. All examples of the Holy Spirit speaking. He's a person, he speaks. He is also the object of faith. So faith always has an object. Some people believe that faith is kind of like, this is a precipice and faith is sort of like stepping into the unknown or stepping into something nonsensical or stepping into sentiment, but that's not a biblical view of faith. We don't check our brains at the door when we put our faith in God. Our faith has an object. It's it's anchored in, it's sourced in, it's connected to, it's hitched to God and his work. And the Holy Spirit as God is the object of faith. We believe in him. We're even baptized into his name, the great commission, which many of you know, And Matthew 28, 19 says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is a reference to the person, the personal nature of the Spirit of God. The Bible teaches us that we're indwelt by God, that the Holy Spirit receives our prayers and he gives us spiritual gifts. That's why they're called the gifts of the Spirit. We're also exhorted not to sin against the Holy Spirit, not to resist the Holy Spirit, not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't say, hey, don't sin against wind or air. If you're gonna sin against someone, there's an object to your sin. If you're gonna blaspheme God, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, there's an object to that blasphemy. And so in Ephesians 4.20, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, emphasizing his personality. The Holy Spirit also fulfills roles that only a person can do. For example, he's called in scripture, our teacher. You have to have subsistence to teach. (laughs) You have to have will and intellect to teach. He is called our sanctifier, our comforter, our guide. He governs every believer who is led by the spirit of God. John 14, 16, and I will ask the father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And then in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. You can't lead someone if you don't exist. So the Holy Spirit, again, is a person. But it continues on. There's many, many more examples of this in scripture of the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Acts 20, 28, that pastors and bishops are made overseers by the Holy Spirit of God. There it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock speaking to overseers, speaking to men like me, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So I thought that was my seminary degree that qualified me. Or there was a job opportunity at the church and so I applied and they liked me. No, that's not, that's not how it works. You have to be granted that role by the spirit to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We'll go on. The Holy Spirit searches hearts. He reveals God to us. He convicts us of sin. John 16, eight, and when he comes, he will convict the world. So this is Jesus in the gospels speaking of what would happen at Pentecost. So now keep in mind, we're on the other side of Pentecost. So this isn't yet future for us. This is present. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He also knows the things of God. First Corinthians 2.10, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You know, one of the coolest doctrines in scripture is a doctrine of illumination. So we have a a Bible here. It's composed of 66 books. There's 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New, written in three or four different languages. And it was given to us by God under the inspiration of God. It's infallible, meaning that it's indestructible. But who here wouldn't admit that at times it's a little challenging to read, especially when you get into some of the older books, the prophetic books, and you're like, man, I'm not even used to reading this kind of literature. I mean, this is like poetry and imagery and metaphor and apocalyptic literature. And it's like, so you, you need to study to show yourself approved. We often emphasize Bible reading. Bible rarely emphasize Bible reading. It emphasizes Bible study. Now, to to study, you need to read, but you also need to go beyond reading to understanding words and context and trying to understand meaning and structure and flow and all of that sort of thing. So we study to show ourselves approved. So we show up and we perspire over the texts of scripture. We, we, We sweat over them. We perspire. There are some preachers that don't perspire, they just inspire. <laughs> they don't want to work at it. They just want to be inspirational. But the Holy Spirit of God has commanded us to study the scriptures. However, there is a limit to our intellectual capacities. 
And there's a limit to our spiritual maturity. And so our culture, our preconceived notions, our sin, our natural resistance to the things of God at times may obscure, muddle and befuddle what God's word is saying. But we have the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he doesn't do the studying for us, but when we study, he goes beyond our perspiration and he's the one that illuminates our minds to truth. So maybe you've kind of had this experience in your Christian walk where you're, you're reading scripture. Maybe it's a passage you've read many times before, but all of a sudden it's almost like God has a big yellow highlighter and he's like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And you're like, I never saw that before. Or that's what I needed right now. How did God know that? That's how, that's how the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit works, which is an incredible gift. By the way, you won't receive any illumination if you don't study the word of God. So God speaks to us primarily through his word. Now, we do believe that God speaks outside of his word, but when he speaks outside of his word, what he actually is doing is bringing to bear what he has spoken on our lives. So you can be walking down the street without a Bible open, without reading your Bible. And God says, you know, hey, Aaron, you need to clean up your act in this area. Okay, that's, that's fair game. But what is it that I need to clean up? And how do I know about that? Because God has spoken to me here. So he's not making up new things that are outside of the word of God. He's convicting. He's working in my life to do a great work. So the Holy Spirit of God is involved in all of that. And then, of course, you remember, I don't need to refer to the passage, in the Gospels when Jesus received his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon him in the form of a dove, but that was the Spirit of God. So all of these passages speak to the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. He is one of the three persons within the eternal Godhead. What does that mean? It means we worship him. We worship him. It means he can be known. Thank God for that. It means he has, is actually working in our lives. He has an assignment to help, to comfort, to convict, to rebuke, to regenerate. It means he's relational. You can't have a relationship with an inanimate object. Sometimes you hear these nutcases out there. I'm going to marry a tree. Really? It's ridiculous. You can't, marry an, you can't have a relationship with an object. Oh, but I really love trees. Too bad. Get some help. <laughs> to have a relationship requires relationality, which requires personality. And it means we can know him and be blessed by him. Secondly, the word of God speaks of the divinity of the spirit. So some have asked, well, is the spirit sort of like God's, I mean, Jesus did call him a helper. So maybe he's sort of like us. He's like a, kind of like a super angel. Just goes around and helps God out with his assignments when God gets too busy or something. No, the Holy Spirit is God. So the Bible says many things about this. First of all, he speaks as God. Acts 28, 25, the Holy Spirit was right 
and saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Aha, there we have some insight into the doctrine of inspiration. That when Isaiah was writing his very long book, who was behind the scenes? Was God violating his personality? No, it sounds Isaiah-ish. Sounds different than Jeremiah. Sounds different than David's work. Wasn't violating his personality or the conventions of language. He was writing in human language, but it was the Holy Spirit guiding that. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through the instrumentality of Isaiah the prophet, and it goes on to discuss that message. In Hebrews 10, 15, it says, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, and you can read the rest, there's two passages that speak of the Holy Spirit speaking to us as God. Believers are called the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. I read a passage for you at the beginning of this message. You can also jot down Acts 5, 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Ephesians 2, 22. Romans 8, 9, and 10. And if I read those too fast, we record this. So you can check it out later. I mentioned earlier that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a sin. In fact, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we're told, is not forgivable. The Bible says, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Matthew 12, 31. What does that mean? Well, the spirit of God is the spirit of truth. The spirit of God is God's agent of regeneration. So if a person pushes away the truth of God revealed to them by the spirit and pushes away the spirit of God who alone can regenerate, they are without hope and therefore unforgiven. And they will remain that way. So by the way, if you're a believer, you don't need to worry about this verse because you've accepted the truth of God and you've been forgiven by him. Sometimes I'll meet believers and they're chewing on their fingernails. What's wrong? Well, I, I, I remember before I was a Christian, I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I said something nasty about the Holy Spirit. So does that mean I can never be sure of, my, sure of my salvation? No, that's not what the text is teaching. It's reminding us of the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to deliver truth and regenerate. And the idea, if I could put it in real simple language, is if you reject God's plan A, there's no plan B. If you reject the truth that God reveals us to, to us by his spirit, or you reject the regenerating work of a spirit, even though from a reform perspective, that's impossible to do. But if you are capable of doing that, then there's no second spirit. There's no second Bible. There's no, in fact, it squares up with what's said about Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The, 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 not ah, ah, ah. The definite article is used there. So the spirit of God is truth. He's involved in our regeneration. It also says he knows all. 1 Corinthians 2.11. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Which fortunately the spirit of God then progressively reveals to us. He is also omnipresent, which is a characteristic reserved for God alone. You probably have heard this one, Psalm 139.7, where the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? You can't flee from God. Who tried that and failed? Jonah. How'd that go? 
Not very well. God had his way. He let Jonah have his day for a little bit, play around, think of himself as capable of escaping from God, but you can't, you can't escape the Holy Spirit of God. Jeremiah 23, 24 is another reference you can look up that communicates the th- same thing. The Holy Spirit does what God does. The works of the Spirit are the works of God. So for example, in Genesis 1, God spoke the world into existence and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. It's not like, hey, I'll take care of this. You go over there. Your assignment's over there, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. So the Holy Spirit does what God does. He regenerates the soul. We're born of the Spirit, the Bible says. We're born of water, which by the way, is not a reference to baptism. It's a reference to physical birth. When, you're, when moms have babies, there's a lot of water that comes out. So you're born of water and you're born of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in your life. He is also the source of all knowledge. He's the giver of inspiration. Again, he's our teacher. He's called our guide, our sanctifier, our comforter in all ages. He made our bodies. He formed the body of Christ as a fit habitation for the fullness of the Godhead to dwell. You'll remember that when Mary conceived, it says she conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then he also makes our mortal bodies alive at the resurrection. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So now we know that God's agent to raise Christ was the Holy Spirit. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This goes back to that opening passage in 1 Corinthians 3. You know, as a Christian, I've been walking with Christ for a long time. And I know up here that the Holy Spirit lives in me. But sometimes my actions don't portray that. Can you relate? Like we're, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You can't say anything, do anything, think anything, hear anything that the Holy Spirit is not fully aware of. That that impacts our response to sin, I think, at least it should. Often when we're sin, we're like, oh, what's my wife going to think? What's the church going to think? What's my neighbor going to think? What's my mom going to think? How about, what does the Holy Spirit think about that? So the more we live with that God consciousness of an awareness that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, it affects the way we respond to sin in life. We're called to worship him. We're called to exalt him. We're called to know him in the same way that we worship and exalt the eternal father and the eternal son. So our worship is Trinitarian. We worship the father, we worship the son, we worship the Holy Spirit, all and equally as God. Which flows into our third point, and that is he is the third person of the Trinity. Not third in importance. Do you remember in our first sermon in this series, if I recall correctly, we talked about being versus function. How you can be equal in your being, in your essence, but you can be inferior, if you will, or subordinate in your function. 
So for example, in a home, let's say there's a mom and dad and two kids. All of them are made in the image and likeness of God. They all have equal access to the things of God. They're all precious and special, but mom and dad have authority over those kids until the kids reach adulthood and leave and cleave, start their own family. And then within that marriage, the husband has authority. He is the spiritual head of his wife. That's not a problem. That doesn't mean the wife is lesser, children are lesser and you're only a real person when you get to be 18 years of age. Or in the life of a church, if I'm a pastor or elder, doesn't mean the pastors and elders are closer to God than you are. Some of you are probably far more spiritual than some of us and maybe more knowledgeable and maybe more gifted. But there's authority structures in the church and there's authority structures in the home. And we believe in authority structures in government. And we, we affirm that. We, Jesus is king of kings, but that doesn't mean there's no, no other kings. So we, we affirm that. We want to respect authority as it functions properly in the civil realm. Well, all of that is to say, we understand in social constructs that a person can have a position of authoritative superiority, but it doesn't mean they're more important in their being. And it's the same within the triunity of God. There's eternal subordination between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. And the Son is sent by the Spirit. Read Philippians chapter 2, where he submits himself to the will of the Father and condescends. So the Holy Spirit then, one can ask, well, is he equal to, 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 the, to the Son and to the Father? We would say yes. In Orthodox theology, we would say he is equal in substance, he is equal in power, and he is equal in glory. And therefore, he is deserving of your worship. But the Holy Spirit also functionally subordinates himself, not just to the Son, but also to the Father. Not just to the Father, but also to the Son. As to the mode of his operation, the way he works in the world, he subordinates himself to the will of the Father and the Son. So he is said to be of the Father and of the Son, meaning that he is sent by them. And the Father and Son then can operate in the world through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So back to that creedal statement, which I promised you we'd circle back to. In the Nicene Creed, this is probably the most debated statement in the creed. In the Nicene Creed, it says, who proceeds from the Father and the Son? Now, when it says he proceeds from the Father and the Son, in the first version of the creed, it just said he proceeds from the Father. And then I think it was just a, maybe a couple decades later, they're like, actually, we've got to add and the Son to kind of clean that up, to, to, to gird up that doctrine a little bit. And when they use that language of proceeding, what they don't mean is that the spirit is generated by the father or the son, that somehow it's like giving birth. It's not that kind of a proceeding, but that he is sent by the father and the son. And this, this took place, this, this clarity was added in the fourth century and it's called the filioque clause. And you might say, it's kind of a minor point. Not a big deal. But it actually was a significant debate during that period of time as to, and for about 600 years after, as to whether this 
statement was legitimate. The Philoque meaning son. Did, did he proceed from the father and the son? Or did he just proceed from the father? Was he just under the authority of the father? In other words, or is, Christ, is the Holy Spirit under the authority of both the Father and the Son? Now, this was so concerning. You might know that as Christ established the church through his apostles and the church grew, there were, right in the first century, there were schisms and cult groups that rose up and the church had to chastise Gnosticism and later Arianism and all sorts of groups. The church has always been reforming and purifying and pushing out false teachers and heretics. But more or less, the church was kind of like one church and there was two competing headquarters, one in the East and one in the West out of Rome. And there, there began to be a lot of tension between the, what was called the Western church and the Eastern church about authority. So in 1054, the church experienced what's called the great schism. And from there forward, we have the, the Western church, which came to be known as the, the Roman universal church. Roman Catholic, the word Catholic means universal. The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they both picked pretty good names. Orthodox means straightway, Catholic means universal. And then of course, fast forward another 500 years and the Western Church split again with the Roman Catholic Church and what we call the Protestant churches. And in both of these great schisms in both the great schism of 1054 and also the reformation of the 15th and 16th century, fundamentally one of the most debated aspects was about authority. Who has authority over doctrine? Who has authority over truth? Who has authority over salvation? Well, in the great schism, the, the, the Eastern church took issue with the addition of the Philoque clause. They're like, we, we reject that. So in, in orthodoxy today, they would still reject that. They would say, no, the, the Holy Spirit just proceeded from the Father. And the Western church and all Protestant churches would say, no, this is where the Protestant church, of which we would be a part, agrees with the Catholic church, that the Holy Spirit proceeded, was sent by the Father and the Son. And there's some significant reasons for this. Probably one of the major ones is, do you remember we talked about the doctrine of consubstantiality? So we say that the son is consubstantial with the father, meaning he is of the same essence. And the spirit is consubstantial with the son, meaning he's of the same essence. He's not a different kind of God. He's of the same nature as God. He's fully divine of the same substance. So it's important that as we think about the Holy Spirit being sent out, if he's just sent by the father and not the son, it's like, well, then is the son actually consubstantial with the father? So there's a theological matter there that the Philoque Clause sought to correct. The Eastern Church, on the other hand, was seeking to preserve the Father's work, his authoritative work within the triune Godhead. Now, the, the, the real issue in the Great Schism, unfortunately, was less about the theology of this and more about the fact that the Eastern Church took issue with the fact that the, the Pope out of Rome said no, we are going to go with the Philoque Clause. And they're like, okay, now, now you're exercising authority over the work of the early church fathers and we don't want anything to do with that. So we're, we're withdrawing. And you'll know now that the Eastern Church has five patriarchs instead of one papal authority. So this is kind of an interesting backdrop to the Philoque Doctrine. 
Well, we would agree with it. And one of the scripture passages that would make us feel quite comfortable with saying that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son is John 14, 26. There's actually a few passages in John that are important. But in John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in in my name. What is the name? Under the authority of. We talk about casting out demons in Jesus' name. It's not that there's something hocus-pocus magical about J-E-S-U-S, that somehow when you open your mouth and say that word, that that, those sound waves chase demons away. You'll, You'll know that Jesus' name is said differently in different cultures and different languages. But it's the power that that name represents. It's the power of the person. It's the power of Christ that can chase demons away because he is king of kings and Lord of lords. So when, when Jesus affirms that the father is sending the Holy Spirit in my name, he's teaching us that the spirit proceeds from the authority of the father and the eternal son. And what will he do? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he bears the same relation to the father as he does to the son. To know the spirit is to also know the father and the son. To know Christ is to know the father and to know the son. To know the father is to know Christ and to know the son. He is said to be of the one as well as the other. And he is given to us by the son as well as the father. His eternal relationship to the other persons of the Trinity is indicated by the word, the spirit of God. Also sometimes called the spirit of Christ. So he is the spirit of God and he's the spirit of Christ not to mix the persons of the Trinity. That's not what it's saying, but to help us to understand that to to know the spirit is to have access to knowing the fullness of God as well as the eternal son. So brothers and sisters, let me conclude by just saying this, to ignore the spirit of God is to ignore God. To fail to worship the spirit of God is to fail to worship the fullness of God. And as we shall see next week, he is an incredible gift to us. Not only in the fact that he spiritually rebirths us in our salvation experience, but he is a daily resource that we have access to. So we can actually live differently and think differently, act differently and see things differently than the unregenerate man can. That's a huge gift. And then in the here and now, he also gifts us for work of the ministry. If you have the capacity to truly encourage in such a way that it brings spiritual edification, that's not you. That's the Holy Spirit of God. If you have the ability to serve in such a way that the church is actually built up, to administrate in such a way that the church is built up, don't pat yourself on the back. That's a result of the spirit working in you. If you have the ability to lead or teach, that's a result of the spirit working in you. You don't get credit for it. The spirit of God gives us those gifts. 
and the Spirit of God, the one we're told who rose, brought again from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, also is our guarantee of our imminent pending resurrection. So again, it, 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 it suppresses fear, fear of death. and reminds us that we don't have to worry about somehow coming back to life. It's not a, a maybe, it's a will be. And it's because the Holy Spirit of God guarantees that. So let's worship the Holy Spirit of God. 